Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. As we think about what defines a local church and what a church is, we have to ask the foundational question, who makes up the church? Who's really a part of it? Is it just those who gather together regularly? Uh, is it all those who, uh, who uh, attend virtually to a church service to stream that? Or is it, or is it a smaller group? And this uh, is foundational for our understanding of so much else about what the church is and what the church does. A couple weeks ago, we started off this discussion defining a local church as a particular group of people who belong to Jesus and have committed to help each other grow spiritually. As they submit to designated leaders, observe the two ordinances, and regularly gather together. Over these next several weeks, we'll be breaking into each of those. But the first, uh, today we're going to look at that first part, that a local church is a particular group of people who belong to Jesus. In other words, it's made up of believers. And we'll, as we'll make the case throughout this episode, that unbelievers are welcome to come, but they are not part of the church. The church is consistently made up of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a previous episode, when we introduced this concept, we talked about Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then finally he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus makes it clear that he is building a church, and it's a church that belongs to him. We also saw in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, uh, last week we dug into that, talking about the purposes of the local church and discipleship. We'll, we'll return to some of those aspects later. But in those verses, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul is talking about the body of Christ, which is a metaphor uh, for the church. And he uses a parallel term in there as for describing those who are part of the body of Christ. They're saints. It's those who have been set, set apart, set apart for a particular purpose, set apart in Christ. And so the, the, the parallel use of saints and the body of Christ there in Ephesians 4 we see that the church is made up of, of saints, is made up of believers. This gets a little bit clearer in some other verses, like in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse, verse 28. In the context there, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he, he's passing by Ephesus, and he's called the elders to him. He's called the leaders of the church, and he's giving them this final commission. And he thinks he wants them to remember He's given them a charge of what to watch out for, what to devote themselves to. And he says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Flock is a term for the people of God in general throughout Scripture. But specifically in the New Testament, it's directed towards a local church. It's directed towards the church. Uh, we see this here in this verse where the parallel use of flock and church, it's in the same verse there, they're used in parallel terms. But what is especially significant here is the idea that, that, that Christ has purchased the church with his own blood. And now for sure, Christ's blood is sufficient for all who will believe in him. It's sufficient for all men. But the concept of him purchasing us with his blood is only applied to, in the New Testament to believers, to those who have received his gift. 
And so by Paul saying that the church has been purchased by Christ's blood, he's saying that in its essence, the church is made up of believers. Jesus gets into this in John chapter 10, where he's using the extended analogy of the I am the good shepherd and some of the implications of that. If he's a shepherd, there has to be a flock for him to shepherd. And in John chapter 10, verses 26 through 28, he talks about that. He says, these are who are my, the, these are the people who are my flock. And he distinguishes those from those who aren't. And he says that those who are part of his flock are those who believe in him and have eternal life. He tells the Pharisees that they're not part of his flock because they don't believe in him. So Jesus himself is making this distinction that only believers are part of his flock. And we understand that flock to be the church. Now, all these verses that we talked about uh, so far, we've kind of run through them uh, fairly quickly. Uh, have I've sought to make a case how they point to believers are part of the church, but maybe you can make an argument otherwise. And some of it has to do through parallel terms and thinking through uh, implications of a metaphor or term throughout Scripture. So is it really such a strong case? Is there anything clearer for us that shows that the church is made up of believers? Well, there is, as we start digging into some more of the epistles and looking at what Paul says about the church. Paul, how Paul introduces his letters and how he introduces, uh, how he addresses his audience is very insightful for us to understand who the church is made of. One very clear example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. It says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Consistently, without exception, throughout the New Testament, those who are in Christ are believers only. Unbelievers are not in Christ. They have not been sanctified and set apart. And Paul is making a strong case there. He's saying that, that the church there at Corinth, the church is made up of those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's not that they might be sanctified one day, or there's a possibility of it. The Greek construction shows that, in a sense, we have already been sanctified in Christ. He's talking about believers, those who are in Him and have been set apart. Those who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it makes it very clear and then throughout the, throughout the rest of the epistle, which is, uh, has so much to do. Paul addresses so much of uh, so many issues about the local church in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he, he consistently points out that the church is made up of believers. And he draws a distinction between uh, between those who are outside the church and those who are within. For example, in chapter five, Paul is dealing with an issue that needs to take uh, an issue that would that would require church discipline, and he's addressing maybe uh, he's addressing how some people have avoided that and have not dealt with the issue. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are uh, within the church? Though he does not use the term membership there, this is a central idea here. He, he knows those who are within the church and those who are without. And he's saying the way we have a special uh, priority in terms of helping each other grow in Christ with those who are within the church, those who are a part of it. Other examples exist throughout the throughout the epistle, but we'll jump to chapter 14. 
there Paul is addressing very clearly about this is what happens when the church gathers together. And in the greater context, he's dealing with the proper use of spiritual gifts. There was a lot of abuse that was going on in the church in that sense that people were fighting with each other over which gift was most impressive, which was most important. And the elevation of tongues was uh, an issue that the church was struggling with. And Paul was saying, no, 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 tongues aren't wrong. They are a gift of the Holy Spirit, but they need to be used properly. Rather, I, I would rather that you prophesy so that the church may be built up and all may be edified. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 22 through 25. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man uh, enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Paul says there that unbelievers are welcome to come to the church. But he demonstrates that there is a distinction between unbelievers and those who are part of the church. He said the whole church comes together and then if an unbeliever enters, there's that distinction. And the implication is that those who make up the church are believers. That they are those who have been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment of conversion. <coughs> and he's saying that those are the ones who make up the local church. It's not a mixture of believers and unbelievers. It's not just those who assemble together. It's those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for believers. Paul also testifies of this in Ephesians chapter 1, where he, he's praising the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there towards the end of this chapter, he's talking about the supremacy of Christ, uh, Christ's victory over the grave and how the Father has exalted him. And he says in Ephesians 1, 22-23, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, the idea of us being in Christ and being his body, there's a particular aspect of, let me rephrase that, that those who make up his body have to be those who belong to him. And other verses support this. Uh, in Matthew 7, verse 20, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says that only those who will enter into the kingdom are those that he knows those who believe in him. It's not just those who do good works or seem outwardly impressive. Uh, it, it's those who have a personal relationship with him. Those That's who uh, are the ones who belong to him. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now that verse is often used in the context of a marriage about uh, believers should not marry unbelievers, but that's not the context. That, that's not what Paul is dealing with there in 2 Corinthians 6. 
and the surrounding chapters. What he's dealing with there is the fact that we've been made new creatures in Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are workers together with God for this. And so, so there's a particular way that we ought to live. We There's a particular way that we ought to uh, behave, a particular goal that we ought to have. And in that work, that that should, that should be what drives us. So there shouldn't be this, this partnership or this bound, uh, binding of ourselves together closely with unbelievers. He's not saying that we isolate ourselves from the world. Uh, he said, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, he says, if that's what I meant, you would have to go out of the world. <laughs> that's That's not what... He's talking about there. He's not talking about us uh, leaving uh, this earth or isolating ourselves in a particular smaller community. He's talking about close fellowship. And so if believers shouldn't have a close fellowship with unbelievers, how much more is the implication that Christ's body is made up of only those who believe, only those who have been purchased by his blood? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, Paul is addressing his letter to the church, and he says, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. Drawing the distinction between those who are of the night and those who are of darkness. Referring to unbelievers. So consistently throughout the New Testament, the case is made that the church is made up of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly unbelievers can enter. They are welcome to attend our gatherings and to, to fellowship in some aspects of the local church. But they do not make up the church. They are welcome to come but they, are, they do not make up the body of Christ. They are not the local congregation. But there may be some objections to this. I mean, there are a couple passages that people could point to and say, well, yes, I see that, but what about these passages? Doesn't this mean that there's a mixture of believers and unbelievers within the church? Uh, one would be the, in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, where ta- Jesus is talking the parable of the wheat and the tares. Where the, the master has gone out, he has sown good seed, he has sown wheat, it's grown up. But in the middle of the night, an enemy came and sowed tares among them. And so there's this mixture of the good crop, the wheat, interspersed among the, the weeds, the, the tares. And the master says, well, don't, don't pull out the tares yet. Leave them until the harvest. And so isn't that saying that there's going to be a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the church? No, it's not. Because Jesus himself explains what he's talking about in verses 37 through 43. won't read the whole thing, but this is, this is how he starts off his explanation to the disciples. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the, and as for the good seed, those are the sons of the kingdom. And I... And, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And uh, and the reapers are angels. Jesus is saying that the field that he's sowing in is not the church. The field that is used in the parable there is the world. And so what he's saying here is not that the church is going to be made up of believers and unbelievers. But that Christians are going to live um, um, in the world among those who don't receive Jesus. That we're never going to bring about the kingdom on our, through our own efforts where every single person on earth is going to be a believer. That's not what's going to happen. There, there will always be a mixture on earth uh, until Christ returns. 
there will always be a mixture of those who believe and those who don't. But again, this we have to look at what Jesus himself says is what he's referring to. He's referring to the world, not the church. So we can't look to this parable and say that there's going to be a, that it's okay to have a mixture in the of those who make up the church of true believers and those who don't profess faith in Christ. But then from another theological concept, what about the people of God? I mean, in the Old Testament, the people of God was national Israel. And not everyone in national Israel believed in Yahweh for salvation. They did not believe in the one true God in that sense. And so isn't... Uh, but God still chose them as his people. Like in Exodus chapter 10, verses 8 through 9. So Moses and Aaron were brought back... Uh, to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve serve the Lord your God. Who who are the ones who are going? Moses, uh, Moses said, We shall go with our young and with our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, we shall go. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. So Moses is saying that those who have to go to serve the Lord is the whole congregation. The young with the old, the men and women, everyone, yeah, including the children. They were all the people of God. They were to go to serve him. So doesn't that carry over to the church? Uh, isn't the people of God those who, who uh, um, are part, are part of, uh, attend regularly part of a local church? And that's going to be a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Well, no. Because the church does not replace Israel. There, we are certainly also part of the church, people of God. But we are not the same as national Israel. And God still has a plan for Israel. Uh, we look in Romans 11. It's very clear about this. Especially verses 25 to 26. Where Paul says, A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And what he's saying is that God still has a plan for national Israel. And he expounds that throughout the rest of the chapter and the verses that precede it. That, the, yes, Israel and the church are both part of the people of God, but they are separate groups. That We can't say that everything about national Israel automatically applies to the local church. There, are, there is some crossover, but they are not the same. Uh, for example, as we'll get to here in a future episode, baptism is not the is not the New Testament equivalent of circumcision. It does not replace that. It's not used in the same sense. So we can't automatically apply that. We can't just say, well, because national Israel was the people of God, so and it had and it had a mixture of believers and unbelievers. So the same thing with the church. No, that that doesn't hold up. The church it is different, is distinct from national Israel. And so what is a church? Well, the first part of our definition is that it is a particular group of people who belong to Jesus. That is so found <coughs> excuse me. That is so foundational for our understanding of what the church is and what the church does, and there will be a lot of implications that will flow from this. But it begins with this idea of membership in a local church begins with belief, personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is made up of true believers. Will we get some wrong? Will we think that some people have professed faith in Christ and they haven't? Yes, we can't fully judge hearts. Only the Lord can. But we should strive to do our best so that uh, those who make up the church are true believers. That's what our goal ought to be. 
And how that membership is played out is going to vary between church to church. It may look differently between uh, one congregation and another in terms of what membership means. But it should, they should all have the foundation that to be a member of the church must mean that we have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The more technical term for this is regenerate church membership. And this has implication that and regenerate church membership flows into the idea of meaningful church membership, which we'll see next week, is that the church isn't just made up of people who believe in Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a random group of believers that, as we'll get into, Lord willing, next week, a local church is a particular group of people who belong to Jesus and have committed to help each other grow spiritually. But uh, I said we'll leave that uh, for next week. I appreciate people listening to the podcast. I, I hope this has been uh, helpful and been encouraging. And I look forward to continuing the rest of the series about what defines a local church. But until next time, read the word and take your stand. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing. To find out more information about Here I Stand Ministries, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1971-1995 by the Lockman Foundation, Used by permission, all rights reserved.